0: You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, brought to you by Savage Arms. Specifically, the new shotgun from Savage called the Renegade. Now, the Renegade is a badass shotgun, and it has a dual-regulating inline valve gas system. The patented self-regulating gas system allows high-power and low-power loads to cycle with the same consistency. This means 3-inch Magnums down to lower-recoil and 2-3-quarter cartridges. If you want to find out more information about the Savage Renegade, visit savagearms.com. My
2: name is Clay Newcomb, and I'm the host of the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. I'll also be your host into the world of hunting, the icon of North American wilderness, the bear. We'll talk about tactics, gear, conservation, but we'll also bring you into some of the wildest country on the planet chasing bears. On this podcast, we talk about part two of the book, The North American Mile of Wildlife Conservation.
3: The Lynchpin of Relevance.
2: Yeah, I think this is a good podcast. Like we kinda got about halfway through the, the book last time yep. in episode seventy seven, two episodes ago. Mm-hmm. And this time we kind of cover the second half. So I think I think people will enjoy the conversation. I had yeah. River Newcomb, Colby the Bear Tech Moorhead with yep. me. Yeah. So, man, this stuff is just so important that we know it. Mm -hmm. And you know, this is just like a little little cheat sheet that you can listen to and hopefully pick up a few things that you'll remember. Yeah. Um. Hey, spring bear season is 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 going on, man. Yeah. Guys are posting pictures of bears that they're killing. Uh. You know, we talk about how the seasons are disrupted right now, but Mm -hmm. there's lots of spring seasons going on. Yeah. Uh, In Idaho, residents can hunt. You know, lots of places people are hunting season to be flexible that's right and uh so if you're hunting check out if you're if you're baiting bears it makes no sense for you not to be using some northwoods bear products smells great some commercial scent so check out Mm -hmm. northwoodsbearproducts.net look at uh if you're a houndsman we have a lot of houndsmen listen to this Mm -hmm. podcast hey we ask you to be loyal to the people that are being loyal to us. If you enjoy this podcast, yep. Uh, the guys at DU, Buddy Woodbury, good mm-hmm. guy. Hey, I want to make an announcement about DU. Mm-hmm. They're starting a podcast. True story. Buddy Woodbury and the guys at W Hunting Supply are starting a podcast. Episode one's available now. Episode one's available now, and yep. it's an all hound podcast. Mm-hmm. You know, our good friends at Houndsman XP have an all hound podcast. Yep, you hear us talk about them and we'll continue to talk about them Mm -hmm. now our buddies at W have an all hound podcast as well yep and so uh, you can check those guys out and lastly our friends at the Western Bear Foundation they got a name drop inside of this podcast didn't they Colby they did as being a non-profit hunting conservation organization doing good things for wildlife they are uh they're a membership-driven organization, and mm-hmm. uh, I hate to even tell people this, but it's true. If you're a member of their organization, you get Bear Hunting Magazine. Man, sure, it's, it's a it's a win-win for yeah. everybody. Yeah. Um. So, hey, the May June issue of Bear Honey Magazine is in the ma- It's probably going to be in the mail by the time this podcast is sent out. It's hot in the press right now. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good issue. Oh yeah. man, I love the cover. Yeah. Cool I can't image. wait for somebody to say something about the cover yeah it's a non-traditional cover
3: yeah yeah for a magazine
2: i'd say so yeah it's not a bear no there is a bear in it though there is but you'll never guess what the how the bear is displayed in such an artistic way yeah Yeah. so it's a good really good issue just excited about people getting it and hey subscribe to our magazine bear hunting magazine uh 25 a year you can get a get six issues 45 for two years or three years for 60 dollars which that's man anything i do i look for the longest possible way that i cannot be harassed by them trying to get me back yeah like really like if if there was a five-year membership to some organization that i like i'd Mm -hmm. just be like yeah i'll do it yeah yeah so you should do that with us Mm -hmm. (laughs) i'm for it (laughs) so on to the podcast. On the podcast. The date the date is April the twenty first, two thousand and twenty. And we're at the global headquarters of Barony Magazine. Hey, just today on my Facebook feed I had a memory pop up. And it was a memory that two years ago in twenty eighteen, I killed a turkey on public land in Arkansas mm-hmm. using Izzy. Yeah. My mule. Yeah. Do you remember those pictures, right? Wait, remember? how many years ago? Just, right. just two years ago. And uh, that hunt was a super cool hunt because I went into some pretty deep backcountry for here in Arkansas on the mule. So, you know, I, I left the truck at daylight basically and rode the mule back into this area. And the whole time I was, I was owl hooting when it was appropriate early in the morning, owl hooting. And then once it got like past fly down time and like an hour into daylight, I would just, I would just cut and cackle and call. we using the diaphragm off the mule all the way back into where I was wanting to go. Mm-hmm. When I got back into about where I was wanting to go, I had a trail camera that I had left through the winter. And so, you know, it was April 21st, first time I've been up there. And uh, I checked the trail camera. I had a little card reader deal. And the the camera died around April the 1st, but there was a long beard in front of that camera on March the 20th. Mm. Well, I just kept going back in and got to about where I thought turkeys might be, tied up the mule, had yet to hear a gobble. I hadn't heard a gobbler. Tied up the mule. Walked 150 yards. The first time I called, (coughs) turkey gobbles. I go into high speed, move forward about 40 yards, sit down, call one more time. (coughs) He's closer. Two minutes later, (coughs) kill a gobbler walk back to the mule first time the mule has ever seen a gobbler and i was still training the mule conditioning the mule to haul game and stuff she hadn't hauled a bear by that time she hadn't hauled a deer Mm. so i didn't know how she was going to act with a turkey anything unusual with an equine animal has the potential to flip them out anything i mean you can walk up with a walmart sack in your hand or a bag of Oreos, which I've never done, uh, you know, presumably <laughs> anything can flip them out. Well, I walk up with this big old gobbler, which to a mule would be a big stinky critter. Mm-hmm. And Izzy just never batted an eye. And mm-hmm. I had about a 18 inch piece of paracord that I cut off and I tied and made the loop between the spur, you know, underneath above the spur, I tied it, yeah. made a loop, tied it on the other spur. Threw it over that saddle horn. Yeah. Had a celebratory cup of jet boiled coffee <laughs> and a fist and, pump. Uh, yeah, And a in a private fist pump mm-hmm. and a prayer of Thanksgiving and headed off the mountain, yeah. happy as I could be. They're, there like there, is, there is killing a gobbler on a beautiful spring morning. Yeah, there is not a substitution for the feeling that that gives me. Like I could kill a boon and Crockett buck, I could kill a brown bear, mm-hmm. and it would not be the same. Yeah. I'm not saying it would be worse or better. Yeah. I'm just saying it would not be the same. There is a spot inside the human soul that is designed to kill turkeys on beautiful spring mornings with no wind. Yeah. If there's wind, it messes it all up. Just feels right. And if they don't gobble, it messes it all up. That's why you don't want to just kill a turkey. You want to kill a goblin turkey. There's a difference, mm-hmm. big difference, and there I rarely feel as accomplished as when I kill a turkey. resonates in the soul it does, yeah, and I've decided it lasts about forty eight hours forty eight <laughs> it lasts about forty eight hours I like it, and then you it still holds its value kind of like a you know like a toyota tacoma uh you know holds its value after it comes off the lot. But you want to go back and get another one.
1: Mm.
2: Yep. So and because our populations are down so far in Arkansas, Colby, mm-hmm. you kind of have to milk that success for a longer period of time. Yeah. Because I didn't kill a turkey last year in Arkansas. Yeah. Um, this year, I think our popula our our, our hunt was even harder than ever. It was it was later, it was shorter. Um and so bear which one of the podcasts, last podcast, maybe we talked about my son, Bear Newcomb. Yeah. Killing the gobbler. Yep. And I am I am milking that for all it's worth. Three days after Bear killed the gobbler, River Nukem, Bear Newcomb and I went back into National Forest and, and over two days hiked and rode 14 miles mm-hmm. and did not hear a single gobble. Good weather too. Pretty good weather. Mm-hmm. Um, never even saw as much as a track or a... In in pretty good turkey country, you yeah. Know. Historically, historically good turkey yeah. country. And so, uh, River. Good afternoon. I again good afternoon. have with I, I I I got distracted by the date. Yeah. <laughs> okay, you. It's April twenty yeah. first. Twenty first. So you know, two years ago. Yeah. So. So, I've got with me, River Newcomb. Say hi, River. Hi. River is my sixteen year old daughter. Um, she is, uh, she's world famous for falling off a mule and then killing a big old Pope and young 19 inch plus Arkansas bear. Uh, I've got Colby Moorhead. yep, Who's world famous for falling off a mule too. (laughs) I forgot both of you guys fell off a mule. Spring bear Montana 2019. And you also killed a big bear in Manitoba. Two yeah. years ago,
3: yeah, two years ago in August, it probably wasn't as big as Rivers Bear,
2: but it was okay. no, <laughs> its body
3: was its body, yeah.
2: It, but the skull,
3: high teens, we said. Well, I think it was, it was just over nineteen. We oh, didn't was know, it really? We didn't know how close it would be okay, once it okay. dried. Well,
2: that'd be about the same because yeah. Rivers was just over nineteen. Yeah. So anyway, these are these are my people here that are on the podcast. Um, <laughs> so what we're going to do today is we're going to continue on with our basically a book review. So we. Two podcasts ago we did we started kind of just a conversation around this book by Valerius Geist and Shane Mahoney about mm-hmm. the North American model of wildlife conservation yep before we get into that though I want to kind of give a a bear status update of what's happening with the spring bear seasons yep I mean you could not have predicted Mm-mm. I mean if you would have said, Clay, if, if you would have had had the, the brightest thinkers in the world that knew hunting, that knew politics, that knew law, and said, What would happen that would cancel spring bear seasons in Canada?
3: <laughs> Not a thing in the world. I mean, Extinction. That, <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. There are no bears left. Yeah. No, that, you, you couldn't have predicted what would happen, mm. you know? Um, I wrote an editorial for the May June issue of bear Hunting magazine which we went to print last week. Colby, I don't you didn't even see the editorial cuz I wrote it like the day we went to print. Yeah. And and I said that in a time of global crisis, literally the things that can be shaken will be shaken. Yeah. And so what we need to do is focus on the things that can't be shaken. Yeah. And spring bear hunting can be shaken. Yeah. Turns out. And and you know, spring bear, hunt, bear hunting is really important to me. But it's not the most important thing. And, uh, and you know, now is a time to uh, – it's really an amazing time for families to to focus on relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, we may never have another time in our life when we're all together this much, yep. you know, inside individual families and homes. And uh, so the time can be really valuable and used for growth and development inside of a family or – it could be detrimental. Yeah, I mean, and I think as as fathers and mothers, like we have the option to uh, of how we script what this is going to look like inside of our homes. But I think yeah. it's a good time to work on stuff. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like my wife and I are working on stuff inside of our marriage, mm-hmm. um, and we're 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 you know, because when you're around each other, you're 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 seeing things. You you need to communicate more. You need to move away from self preference and move away to preference of the whole. What's best for the family. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, there's some work going on relationally, but but we're also having a great time. You know, we're spending a lot of time together. So this uh, coronavirus, COVID nineteen, has had significant impact on families. And for the relevance of this podcast, we're going to talk about what it's done for bear hunting. Yeah. Because currently the Canadian border is shut down mm-hmm. except for essential traffic. River, do you know what that means?
1: Like the people that have to work? Yeah. Maybe.
2: Seems like bear hunting should be essential. Yeah, that's essential.
1: It? Yeah, for like, yeah.
2: Yeah. What if I rolled up there and I was just like, hey, <laughs> I, you know, I published Bear Hunting Magazine. Yeah. I got to go to Canada. Yeah. They'd let me through. Probably. Do y'all remember that one border guard that me and Brent Reeves talked about when we uh, smuggled that watermelon into Canada?
1: <laughs> yes. Wait, the, the one.
2: He wouldn't have let us through. <laughs> he was. Because you had fireworks? Well, had that, that's, what he, that's what he asked. He was like, What kind of fireworks you got? I was like, What? I said, Firearms? What kind of fireworks do you have? I don't have any fireworks, man. Anyway. He wouldn't have let us through. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but essential travel. Okay, so so let's just give a quick rundown. And this may not be the totality of it, but this is pretty close. Mm-hmm. There there are nine states in the U.S. that allow spring bear hunting. Okay, in the lower four, well, nine states, okay? mm-hmm. and then almost all the Canadian provinces except for like Nova Scotia um, and some of the higher Canadian provinces, like none of it. And so essentially all the Canadian provinces have a spring bear season. Mm -hmm. Currently in the U S Washington state has totally shut down their bear hunt for the year. Yeah. Okay. So you can't hunt in Washington, uh, Oregon. The bear season is open as I understand it. Um, Montana, uh, came out about two weeks ago and they closed down non-resident bear hunters coming into the state. Yeah, which that directly has affected us mm-hmm. because we 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 are were planning a trip to Montana this mm-hmm. year. So, but on the twenty fourth of April, which is just a few days from now, they are going to decide what they're going to do. Yeah, there's speculation that they're going to open it up to non-residents because Montana has hardly been hit by the coronavirus. They have very few population, no, but yeah. small populations, so it's not spread. It's been one of the states that hadn't been hit very hard, so they're trying to kind of open back up the borders. Mm-hmm. Um, they did say they sent out a uh, bulletin to people that basically said they're considering – what did they say? Um, well, it was essentially like they're considering open up the borders, and if it wasn't work-related, you had to quarantine for 14 days if you'd been out of state – Ah, it, it was. They're giving some instruction. Okay. Yeah. Um, Wyoming bear season is open. Arizona bear season is open. Um, the the uh, m- Idaho bear season is closed to non-residents. Residents mm. can hunt, just like in Montana. Residents can bear hunt. Yeah. Not they've they've closed down the sale of non-resident tags in Idaho with no yeah. prescription. You know, no no future casting that they're going to open it up this year. Yeah. Which really hurt a lot of people that were going to go up there. Yeah. Um Many of the, so let's talk. Okay. So let's move from the U S into Canada. Most Canadian bear outfitters have canceled their hunts for this spring. Yeah. We wrote a story in the May, June issue of Barony magazine where we talked about, the the economic impacts to bear hunting outfitters in Canada. Mm-hmm. You know we have a lot of great relationships with bear outfitters in Canada. For sure, that's that's what we've kind of built uh, a lot of what we do for our people that get our magazine is hooking them up with Canadian bear outfitters, the right yeah. ones. Um, we wrote this article, and I want to kind of give a picture because somebody may maybe somebody booked a Canadian bear hunt, and then the outfitter is like well, we're not going to do it. And you've already given them a non-refundable deposit. Yeah. And maybe there's some question about how this should be handled. Well, in this article, we basically encourage people to just be patient and let the outfitter have some time to figure out what they're going to do when they've now lost basically potentially half of a year's income. Yeah. And, um, and the way that these outfitters work, especially baited bear hunts in Canada, is that you give the outfitter a uh, you give the outfitter a deposit, yeah, and then they buy supplies for their camp and bait for that spring hunt mm. long in advance. I mean, they would yeah. have done that back in January, February for yeah. sure, yeah. March. And so, potentially, the money that you gave them has already been spent on the hunt that was you were potentially supposed to come on. Yeah, so. A lot of times, maybe that money is not there for them to give back. Yeah. And as much as people may think that bear outfitters are rich, they're not. Mm -hmm, No. I mean, I I described it to somebody today that didn't know the hunting world. And I said, you know, the people that we work with that are these bear outfitters, man, they're just good, hardworking people that are wanting to make a living doing, being their own boss and, Mm -hmm. and essentially... Living off the land. Yeah. I mean, they're they're not doing it to get rich. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are some outfitters in different places that probably money is a big motivation, but not somebody that's making their living off black bear hunts. No. And, um, and so what we encourage people to do in this article is just be patient. And uh, Jill Paradis, uh, Riverside Lodge, one of our good outfitters in our magazine from Manitoba, uh, he was quoted in the article... And he said, if you have booked with a reputable outfitter, you have nothing to worry about because they are going to make it right. Now, it may be next year. Mm -hmm. You know, they're going to have to do some finagling, but just be patient. Yeah. And and, and I think that's what we've got to do all the way around in a time of crisis, even from just a standpoint of just, you know, I mean, nobody wants to be out money and, you know, it's kind of a hard deal. Yeah. But, uh, but my encouragement to you, if, if you have booked a hunt, is just be patient mm. and uh, you'll get, you'll get your hunt. Yeah. And so uh, um, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. River, what do you think? No, River doesn't want to talk. <laughs> She's shaking her- You got no comments on the Canadian bear outfitters. You've never been to Canada.
1: I've never been to Canada. I want to go there for my senior trip
2: though. Oh really? go on a bear hunt. What kind of bear hunt do you want to do?
1: Brown bear hunt. But I said that to you once and you said... Wait a
2: minute. You can't hunt brown bears in Canada.
1: I'm in Alaska.
2: (laughs) She wants to do a brown bear hunt in Alaska for her senior trip. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Not Canada.
2: Okay. But... Big big dreams. (laughs) Big dreams. You know how much that costs?
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's the one that... Okay. I wanted to go to Alaska to do a brown bear hunt and then you said that... I would probably rather go to Canada. That's all I got it mixed up. So I do want to go to Canada and do the black bear hunt. Yeah, mm-hmm. that'd be
3: awesome. Colby, your thoughts? Yeah. No, I mean, dealing with some of these guys up in Canada, they're just really good people, you know, really easy to work with, and they never, they never try to get anything over on you. Like, you know, just really, really solid individuals, at least the ones that I've dealt with. Yeah. And so, yeah, I definitely have more of a thing It's like, well, if I can help, I'm okay with you, you know? yeah. Like, I wouldn't have a problem with them keeping the deposit just because of, like, knowing them and knowing, like, just how they are, you know? Yeah. And, uh yeah, I mean, it's expensive to to bait and, and run as many different baits as they do and, you know, all the equipment they have to use to get in and out. And so there's a – all of that is just, like, overhead, you know? And yeah. It's like that money – isn't part of their profit. It's part of your experience, you know? Yeah. And so I think just realizing it's like realizing that, that those funds are, are really just basically setting up a foundation for you to have a, a enjoyable time and not them, you know, taking that for themselves. Right. And having that understanding
2: really, really helps. Yep. Yep. Well, that's good. That's good stuff to, To think about, and um, let us move on to the second part of the book review: North American Model of Wildlife Conservation. So, as we stated before, this book came out, I think, at the first of the year. Okay. So, uh, it it the the copyright date in the first of the the first few pages of the book says 2019. So, I think it was probably actually published in fall of twenty nineteen, like mm-hmm. winter twenty nineteen. Yeah. But it, it, it really just started to, to, to get into people's hands at the first this year. So what we said was that we're trying as as a hunting community, we're trying to establish our relevance in modern times. That's what I think that we're trying to do. And if you're if you're not trying to do that, um, you should be. You know, there's this phrase, this this pop culture Word that's used to describe the way a person, kind of a person's worldview, okay, and that pop culture word is four letters long, and it's woke, <laughs> okay, okay. I I think that a hunter, someone who is a hunter, that is thinking just beyond, you know, the the primitive nature of potentially just somebody that doesn't care that just wants to go shoot something like I'm not talking about that guy but but the guy that's woke mm-hmm. just a little bit yeah that appreciates hunting that appreciates wildlife that appreciates and understands the uh, the the privilege that we have as Americans to do what we do bizarre it's a bizarre human experience experiment to do what we're doing mm-hmm. and and it's worked with like massively, flying colors in the last 130 years that uh, that we've allowed the citizenry of these United States to have access to public lands and yeah. private lands yeah. to kill wildlife and take it into private possession mm-hmm. because that would be so bizarre from what, what we came from. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the foundation of the current American governmental system and our people was that we came from other places, and that people were persecuted, and so they left persecution, they left tyranny, they came to America looking for freedom, and so over where a lot a lot of people would have come from, the founders of this country, wildlife was owned by the noblemen mm-hmm. at different times. We set up kind of reviewing, okay. Yeah. Wildlife was owned by the king. Literally, the king of England owned wildlife. Mm-hmm. And then sometime in the 1500s, there was a, an act made where they said, oh, okay, the king doesn't own it all, but the landowners own the wildlife that's on their land. Mm-hmm. And who were the landowners of the time? The Rich folk. Noblemen. So essentially, the peasants, the, the common man was taken out of the hunting equation and uh, the king actually used that law to disarm the citizenry of Europe, uh, I mean, mm-hmm. of, of the United Kingdom of England at one time, because I don't have a lot of detail on that, but, but he, they used that to be like, hey, you can't hunt, so you can't have guns. Yeah. We also talked about, okay, so, so that's where we came from. So this whole idea of the citizenry owning wildlife is a bizarre experiment. I mean, because think about it. If you said we are going to try something new on this massive continent to save wildlife, and here's the idea: we're not going to cinch it down to just where the elite few get to hunt. That that would seem to be the safe call for yeah. those in power. Yeah. But guys like Teddy Roosevelt and you know the founders of this this the ideology of the North American model of wildlife conservation. Said, you know what? For this to work long term, people need to have vested interest inside this. People need to receive benefit when this thing succeeds. Mm-hmm. People need to have a reason to want to preserve wildlife, and inside of that reason, there would be culture built where we, where we report po- poachers, where we don't want overharvest of this year because we're already thinking about next year. Yeah. And so like it was this essentially bizarre experiment where they said, you know what? We're going to let the common guy, anybody that is, you know, is free from a criminal record and has access to a weapon to hunt, which in this country that's been one of the founding principles of this country: Second Amendment, our ability to hold and bear arms, which the North American model hinges upon the common man having guns. Mm. That's that's incredible. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. it's not just you know I mean we talk about the Second Amendment and stuff and and there's lots of different narratives inside of that you know uh, but I think it's pretty cool that one of the narratives is that the Second Amendment is a big part of the success of wildlife in this country, which is counterintuitive. You would think if you give every hillbilly and redneck a gun that they would kill everything, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but they don't because the culture has been built in such a way that, uh, you know, there are poachers, there are people that break the law, but they are a lot less than they used to be. I believe I think our culture is less tolerant of thieves and robbers, um, and uh, our law enforcement is better. Just things are better. Okay, so that's the that's that's where we that's where we started. Okay, River Newcomb. this is what I want you to know. Okay, um, we talked last podcast about how River is pretty vocal at school. And she, she kind of likes to have a reason for why she does what she does. And that's mm-hmm. good. Yeah. Um, what we didn't get into last time, which is essential in, in, in the last podcast was called the Lynchpin of relevance. Yeah. Um, and to me, one of the linchpins of relevance that every hunter has to know, and this isn't new. There's, you know, Brunella's talked a lot about this. There's, a, uh, uh, hunting collectives talked a lot about that. I mean, a lot of bigger podcasts have talked about the, the Pittman Robertson act. Yeah. But for our people, we're going to talk about it again because the Pittman Robertson act is one of the most influential pieces of legislation that makes us relevant. I mean, it is the thing that makes us relevant. Yeah. I mean, there's just a handful of things that really make hunting relevant in modern times and this is one of them. Mm-hmm. And so the 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 Pittman-Robertson um Pittman-Robertson Act is technically th- that's kind of like the colloquial name, like the common usage name. Yeah. Uh, but it's actually called the Federal Aid and Wildlife Restoration Act. What's it called, River?
1: The Federal Aid Wildlife Restoration Act.
2: That's right. Um do you know when it was signed into law and which president did it? Colby, do you? Don't Man, I always, always want to guess Roosevelt. <laughs> yeah, I will guess Theodore well, Roosevelt. You're, you're wrong, but you're right. Yeah. Because it was Roosevelt, but it wasn't Theodore. It was Chuck's. Uh, uh, the other Roosevelt. <laughs>
1: Franklin. Franklin
2: Delano. That's right. Good job, River. <laughs> yeah, it was Franklin Delano Roosevelt in, yeah. in 1937. Okay. Okay, so by the 1930s is essentially when the North American model was in full bore, widespread usage, okay? Yeah. In the last podcast, we talked about what the North American model is and and, and the Seven Sisters of Conservation, Mm -hmm. okay? And I may go back and review those. But so by the 1930s, pretty much all those things were in act. They were enacted. Yeah. And uh, so the Federal Aid and Wildlife Restoration Act was signed into law by President Franklin D. Roosevelt on September 2nd, 1937. Okay, River. Long time before I was born, long time before Colby was born. Uh, Paw Paw Newcomb was born in 1948, Gary Newcomb. So just give you a little, you know, 11 years before Paw was born. Hey. Um. So, but listen, this is what it, the Pittman Robertson Act is funded. Through an 11% federal user pay fee or excise tax. That's a good thing to, to know. A user pay fee is an excise tax. You mm-hmm. might hear someone say excise tax. Well, what, I didn't know what that meant. Yeah. It's a user pay. It means so the people that are participating in that sport are the ones that are taxed. Mm-hmm. So an excise, an excise tax doesn't mean that uh, bread at the grocery store, the tax you pay on that does not go to this. Yeah. So if you never hunt, if you never buy firearms, if we're going to look at what actually pays it, like you mm-hmm. don't pay into this. Yeah. So this is a user pay excise tax on these things. And this is important. You need to know this. Mm-hmm. Sporting arms. That means firearms. Mm-hmm. Archery equipment. Yep. And ammunition. Mm-hmm. And it's a 10% tax on handguns. So okay. there's a differentiation. So okay. there's an 11% tax on on sporting arms, archery equipment, and ammunition. So, broadheads, bows, arrows, fletchings, anything that has to do with archery is taxed at 11% rate above the standard tax. Hmm. And that money is collected by the federal government and goes into a big fund. Okay, it's uh, c- collected by the US Department of Treasury. And these funds are apportioned each year as grants to the states and territories by the US Department of Interior. And based on a formula set forth in the act, okay? And so basically what it boils down to is that the physical size of your state and the number of licensed hunters is how the formula works for how much money that you get from Robertson Pittman, okay? Mm-hmm. But therein, uh, there, there's another critical piece of it is that uh, basically – the federal government through this pays 75% and the states pay 25%. So basically, if, if, if the state of Arkansas got $75,000 in Pittman-Robertson mm-hmm. money. That is put 25 up. They would have to pay 25,000 mm-hmm. from wherever, yeah. whether they got it from license sales or whether they got it from whatever, however they got it. Does that yeah. make sense? Mm-hmm. So they're trying to make the states have a stake in what they're doing, too. Because we all know that sometimes government money, you know, is it's just if it's free money, it's you know sometimes used in ways inefficient ways. So basically, it's it's putting some responsibility on the state. It's like if yeah. you're going to use this money for this, then you got to put some in there too. Yeah. Um. So here is the next question: Is uh, what is it used for? Do you know, Colby? I know see that's we we know the and see I, I I can't say that I knew this that well but it's like yeah. what's it used for so it's it's I one thing to say we fund conservation
3: yeah I, you know for some reason I don't think it's all like wildlife related things I I want to say it's even like other projects like for parks and stuff like that yeah like recreational things not solely wildlife gun
2: ranges is what you're thinking of
3: gun ranges
2: yeah <laughs> yeah there's there's a specific allotment of Robert Pittman Robertson money that is that is that goes to public gun ranges. Okay. Um, But let's see. We need one of those around here. Yeah, we do. We do. We don't have one. Yeah. Okay. Of the funding available to the states, more than 60% is used to buy, develop, and maintain wildlife management areas. Okay. Over 4 million acres have been purchased outright since the program began. So 4 million acres have been purchased out, right. Yeah. Nearly 40 million acres are managed for wildlife under agreements with uh, other landowners. So Pittman Robertson money goes to fund wildlife management areas yeah. and to a- acquire habitat, okay? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to flip over to another section of the book right here where um you know there's a there's a place in here where it talks about exactly what uh, it's kind of spread out, but Robertson Mm -hmm. Pittman Robertson money is used for wildlife management areas, wildlife management areas, buying land, academic research. Okay. That's a big one Yeah, because uh, the whole, the, the linchpin of this model Mm -hmm. is that
3: scientific, scientific
2: based data, research data is used. And so like, uh, Mike Chamberlain, the Turkey doc that's been on Ronella's podcast Mm -hmm. and land and legacy. Yeah. Um, he said that a lot of his turkey research in the southeast has been funded by Pittman Robertson money. OK. So they fund research projects. so they fund and the way that works, River Newcomb, is that like if you went to school to University of Arkansas and decided to get your master's in biology or your mm-hmm. PhD. in biology, you might say, "Hey, I want to study turkeys in Arkansas, and you would submit a proposal and they would have to pay you and pay for your research, and it would cost a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, And so that Pittman Robertson money would go to fund that. Yeah. Okay. And so uh, it it also, uh, an allotment of the money goes towards hunter recruitment as well, Mm -hmm. hunter recruitment programs. Yeah. So like Arkansas Game and Fish Commission can like say, hey, we're getting $3 million from the federal government. We're going to put in a million. Mm-hmm we're going to use some of that money for boat ramps and wildlife management areas. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're going to, we're going to use some of it for building some outreach programs to recruit new hunters that may be advertising that may be, you know, building online programs for kids or something, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then they may say, and we're going to buy, you know, there's 350 acres that's privately owned in the middle of this Wildlife management area. We're going to buy that. Mm. Uh, they may say we're going to clean up this gun range. We're going to buy a new gun range. You know, there's a lot of different stuff. That's what Pittman Robertson does. Yeah. Um, I want to say that there's been there's another place in this book where it talks about how much actual land has been purchased from Pittman Robertson,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and it's a, it's a massive amount of land. Yeah. Um, so this money is essential. And, and if we're talking about relevance of modern hunting, it's a user pay fee. I mean, hunters and firearms users are paying for this. Mm-hmm. Hikers, bird watchers, bicyclers, they do not pay into this. Yeah. I mean, and so it's like, you know, some people might have, some people could, you know, the devil's advocate could be like, you know, well, just because you pay for it doesn't mean that you're the only ones that gets to say in a democratic society. Yeah. But it's a hard thing to argue against. It's like, well, we're the ones paying for it. We've been the ones paying for it since 1937. Yeah. Um, and I, and that is good. That's really good. It's really good stuff. But okay. River Newcomb, how much money does Robertson Pittman Robertson fund? Here's another question. We're going to look at, there's this one section in the book where it talks about how much money hunters contribute annually to conservation. Yeah. And it breaks it down into three categories, okay? The first one is actual Pittman-Robertson money. Okay, listen to this. And this is just statistics from one year, 2016 would have been four years ago. Okay. In 2016, $695 million dollars. Was apportioned to state wildlife agencies in the United States from the excise tax collected on hunting and shooting purchases, which is the federal wildlife and restoration. That was the funds.
3: payout. Like, how much went to the states?
2: Yep, six hundred ninety-five okay. million. Okay, six hundred ninety-five million. So that went to all fifty states, presumably. Mm-hmm. You know, so you know you can do the math. Let's do the math here. Like, what's six ninety-five divided by fifty? That's like. Uh, Twelve. oh, uh, blah, blah, blah. Do you, yeah, get your calculator. Get, <laughs> get your calculator. calculator out. Yeah, um, I don't. L- let's do just get a um, general idea of like if it was apportioned equally out to the states. Thirteen point nine million each. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's good. If okay, we we. It, but we know not everybody's equal because there's little states. Rhode Island's out. <laughs> Rhode Island ain't getting much. PR money, uh, but like the state of Texas has a is massive and has yeah. tons of hunters. Yeah, Michigan, Wisconsin have tons of hunters. Mm-hmm. Arkansas is a average-sized state, but I mean, we don't have a lot of people here. Montana's mm-hmm. a huge state, but not a lot of people. So yeah. all these things factor in. I would think the West would be higher just uh,
3: from the amount of tags sold, because I would imagine it would take into account non-resident it
2: would. license sales too yep it would is because it's licensed sales so okay well that's just a good idea so but you know potentially like if it were so presumably some are getting a lot more than 13 million yeah and some are getting less than that obviously okay so that's that's one thing Pittman robertson money and again we're talking about hunters contributing financially to conservation Mm -hmm. which we know that everything in this world that works unfortunately revolves around the, the almighty dollar mm-hmm. you know so for and, and they talk about that in this book part of the reason the north american model of wildlife conservation has been so successful is because it's worked economically yeah it's it's provided jobs for people the hunting industry is huge yeah um there's benefits to it that go beyond just the individual being able to go hunt and procure wild protein yeah there's people that make a living from hunting mm-hmm. uh there's you know manufacturers of products outfitters um you know all these positive things but also the actual funding of you know maintenance of these areas and and research and all this stuff so but the second thing is uh the sale of hunting and fishing or the sale of hunting licenses okay mm-hmm. okay river take a guess um how much money annually, just take a guess, it comes from, she's got folks, she's shaking her head and her eyebrows are furrowed. <laughs> um, how much money do you think comes from the sale of hunting and fishing licenses in this country? I'll give you, do you have your phone? You don't have, you don't even have your calculator. No, Because you could do a quick guesstimate. You could say, well, there's, I could tell you there's like a hundred something thousand licensed hunters in Arkansas. They pay $25 a year. So there's a couple million, and this is just one state, and there's 50, so you could multiply that times two. Okay, but you won't do that. Colby, what's your guess?
3: Oh, let's say 70 million.
2: Okay. Try 600 million. Yeah, I knew I was gonna be way it's off. It's okay, it's okay. I, it to- I, I yeah. wouldn't have known where to guess. Yeah. I wouldn't have had a clue. So, So, again, let's... 695 million from Pittman Robertson excise tax 600 million from the sale of hunting and f- hunting licenses yeah. from all the states yeah. okay and then there's another massive contribution um, hold on just a second okay yeah yeah there's another massive contribution mm-hmm. amount that comes from private donations from hunters For conservation efforts, which would come through organizations like Wild Sheep Foundation, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, National Wild Turkey Federation. We're going to throw in our buddies at the Western Bear Foundation, Mm -hmm. Um, Ducks Unlimited. So River, there's these massive, they call them NGOs, non-government organizations. So they don't work for the government. They're non-profit 501c3s, which means they raise money, but they're not really designed to... Profit increase personal wealth for any one person, and uh, so these organizations are very well run, very well funded, and do some incredible work. And uh, okay, how much do you think that they just guess? It's like rivers. You can just guess. (laughs) Colby, guess first. Hey, whatever he guesses, guess what he says times two. Colby, what's your guess? How much? How much much private donations? 150 million. Okay, River, please multiply that times two. <laughs> oh gosh, um, it, 350 million. That's not even close. <laughs> oh gosh, she said 2.5. The correct answer is 300 million. So I was closer than him. What? Well, if you would have done what I said, you'd have been you'd have been exactly right. I was
1: close to what you said.
2: Yeah, three. I was amazed at that number. Yeah, 300 million. Wow. In donate, private <laughs> donations. So that means what? Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. And so, mm-hmm. you know, they're taking donations from, they're taking small donations mm-hmm. from people through membership funds and different yeah. things. But there's also some big players in conservation. I mean, mm-hmm. the wealth of this country is pretty much unprecedented. Yeah. I don't really understand big money, mm-hmm. but there are people that have big money yeah and they need tax write-offs and and i mean some of them may be totally their donations are truly because they care about wildlife which Mm -hmm. i mean i'm sure a lot of them are but i mean like these these groups are getting big money from some individuals Mm -hmm. that are and man i'm glad they are yeah so so that combines so there's three things Mm -hmm. Pittman robertson yeah uh Hunting and fishing licenses mm-hmm. and then private donations by hunters account for about $1.6 billion. billion, with a B, dollars yeah. every year for conservation, which goes towards all kinds of stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. everything. So, you know, like like license fees and stuff, mm-hmm. like that would go to just fund your state's general wildlife management mm-hmm. organization stuff. I mean, like Arkansas Game and Fish Commission, they've got biologists. They've got field technicians. They've got private lands biologists that will come out to your land and walk your land with you and give you recommendations. They've got uh, game wardens that patrol and are making sure people are obeying the laws. They've got wildlife management areas that need gates put up. They need, um, you know, like fisheries. You know, they're mm-hmm. stocking fish. They're, yeah. uh, they're, moving around turkeys at different times. They're doing research. They're doing den studies for bear. They're mm-hmm. you know, I mean like all that stuff is primarily funded through the sale of hunting and fishing licenses. Yeah. And um uh, seems like they have a surplus. What like do you they mean?
3: probably have more in the fund than they're actually like using with the states. Well We'll say, describe what you mean by that. That that the amount contributed contributed is more than what is going out to like states and projects potentially.
2: Are you saying they have more money than they need?
3: Well, just that's been like requested, maybe. Yeah,
2: you know. So I don't like, know because I, I mean, I, what I hear is a lot of these organizations are really pinched. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, because it was like
3: what six hundred ninety-five million that went out to state yeah, for Pittman yeah. Robertson, and it's like, was the rest of that one point six annual billion dollars at least in two thousand sixteen? It's like, where is how's that get spread out?
2: It's probably yeah. not in the
3: book. It's just yeah, yeah.
2: Well, I mean, I I think we can say the hunting license part of it, which is six hundred million, is mm-hmm. going to just fund state stuff. I mean, you see a game of fish truck driving down the road. Oh, okay. That, so that was not that. So
3: that wasn't like part that's coming out into Pittman Robertson, like not like every license has a little bit that goes through the Pittman Robertson.
2: No, 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 no. Because oh, okay. Pittman Robertson is free money that you get from the government. Yeah, that's ear tagged for certain projects. Gotcha. Are you with me?
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, I just thought, like, with firearms and stuff, I always thought, like, firearms, archery, and all that. And then when you said licenses, I was like, oh, well. It diff- three different yeah. categories. Okay.
2: Pittman-Robertson money, license money, uh, private doma- okay. donation money, which, gotcha. you know, like the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission wouldn't be getting money from, you know, well, they they probably do get some money for work with Ducks Unlimited or Rocky yeah. Mountain Elk Foundation. For not wild well sheep but I mean, they're, it's not like they're writing yeah. checks to Game and Fish to yeah. buy gas for biologists in Arkansas. Yeah. Okay, but the guy for gotcha. buying gas for biologists comes from that hunting license money. Yeah, I had you a little know. bit of a disconnect there. There you go. Okay, good. Well, it, it, that's good to get clarity on it. Um, so that's all. I, I think every hunter ought to know that. I think everybody ought to be able to have some understanding of how that works yeah you know so that you could have an intelligent conversation with people and just so you could appreciate i mean like we just take stuff for granted i mean i do yeah you just take it for granted that there's biologists you take it for granted that uh, there are people that have the best interests of wildlife working in your state yeah that are trying to you know i mean in general wildlife agencies are not trying to strangle out the sportsmen no. because they make a living off the sportsman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are sportsmen. Yeah. And, and so in general, the, these, you know, it just helps to, to know um, what's going on. Yeah. Just that passion for wildlife is kind of the underlying thing. Right. Um, Let's see. Okay. Here's, here's an interesting statistic. Recent estimates indicate that about seventy percent of the users in these areas and it's talking about just public lands in the United States, let's say. Seventy percent of these users of these areas do not hunt. And in some properties and percentages may be as high as ninety five percent. Despite the funding source, conflicts sometimes arise when non consumptive users express concerns about seeing hunters using areas. <laughs> oh, the irony. The irony. Do you get that, River? Mm -hmm. So it'd be like us being out in the national forest, turkey hunting, and hikers seeing us in camouflage, Mm -hmm. carrying guns, and being like, not liking that. Yeah. And then the irony of that. And see, that's where, that's where as hunters, there's a lot of things going on there. We do have to be worried about public perception, but we also have a PR issue, public relations issue, Mm -hmm. where if, if this were widespread and saturated throughout the culture. Like if if we knew this, like we know a whole lot of other stuff in our culture,
3: mm-hmm.
2: people would see a hunter and they would go, oh, thank you. Yeah. A, a, a hiker would walk by a hunter and say, thank you for buying that gun and those shells and that camouflage and that turkey call because you are paying for the maintenance of this forest. Mm-hmm. I mean that's the truth. Yeah, and and not the, you know that that's, you know I mean th- like the Forest Service isn't fully funded by Robertson Pittman Act. That's not what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Cause that's not true because you know that non-consumptive user is, you know if it's National Forest is paying something into National Forest, but for wildlife related stuff, yeah, that is funded by, by by hunters. Mm. And then some wildlife management areas that are specifically wildlife management areas, like mm-hmm. owned by Arkansas Game and Fish Commission yeah, uh, or owned by your state. Those are fully funded by the, the, the dollars of hunters. Yeah. Okay. So the irony of it, the irony. Um, let me see. Where are we going now? Um, there, so I'm just kind of perusing through this book, trying to find – different, uh, different things that are, that are of interest. Um, I keep going back to this idea of self-interest playing a massive role. Um, let's see, do I want to read that or not? I think I'm going to, (laughs) one of the greatest achievements, achievements and surprising aspects of the early North American conservation movement was the recognition that self-interest must play a role in any long-term effective strategy. The North American model, as it emerged, clearly represented a strong practical approach that returned something of direct value to the citizenry of the day. It was in this frame of reference that hunting defined as fair chase recreational pursuit, which was in contradiction with market killing, became the cornerstone of the North American approach to wildlife protection and enhancement yeah so this idea that the self interest of wildlife being owned by the citizenry is the is the crux is the focal point of this model is uh that's pretty pretty amazing stuff so the final chapter in this book is called social Economic and Ecological Challenges to the North American Model of wildlife conservation okay. so the, the model worked so wonderfully in the 1900s. It it truly did. You know, we talked about in the last podcast about how one of the critical components of this model is that the general citizenry understood and, and approved of hunting as a way to gather meat, essentially. Like that... Because if that wasn't mainstream, then the model would collapse. Yeah. Like if there came a time when only 20% of the people thought hunting was okay to hunt, you know, it was okay to hunt for meat and 80% didn't, the model would collapse. Yeah. Well, the 19th century, uh, not the 1900s uh, were, were ripe for that. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, hunting participation was at its peak in the 1980s mm-hmm. when I want to say there were like 16 million hunters, licensed hunters in America. Yeah. And, but our population at the time was like 230 million people. So that was a fairly high percentage of hunters. Yeah. Today, I think there are, um, 11 million licensed hunters in the United States that may not seem like that big a deal. It's like, well, there's only 5 million less, Mm -hmm. but the population of the United States has increased by a hundred million. Yeah. So we're now like 4.5% of the population. Yeah. So it's pretty significant numbers. And so, one of the things that this book talks about is that in modern times, which I mean, we live in such a radically different world because of, and it's a lot of, because of the internet, it's because mm-hmm. of globalization. It's a lot of different things, but th- they said, what are the challenges to the model? And they actually made a list. And and here are seven challenges to the model. We're not going to talk about all these. We're just going to talk about a few of them. Gotcha. But I think it's, that's what we've got to think about as hunters. It's like, what are, we, what are we going to do different if we want this thing to persist? Yeah. And ultimately, if you want something to persist beyond your life, you have to assign it some type of like sacred value. Mm-hmm. I mean, because like, I could just say, I mean, like, I'll pro- I'm, will you know, I'm middle-aged. I'll probably be able to hunt for the rest of my life, presuming that I live into my 80s. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, there would be some form of hunting like if not if if even if this thing starts to go south
3: Mm -hmm. but you still go fishing
2: yeah (laughs) yeah but that can't be good enough no like like hunting has has shaped my life in such a way that essentially for me to think about my progeny my sons and daughters and their kids and their kids and their kids yeah it, it it disturbs me to think that there could be newcomers on the earth a hundred years from now that couldn't go in the mountains of Arkansas and hunt a bear. yeah mm-hmm. that that is essentially enough disturbance inside of me to say I want this thing to persist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we have to find ways to make it persist. But the the difference is, is that the world's radically different than when this model was at its peak of success, okay? So now we're seeing all these challenges to the model, and here they are. Th- and that's what – this book is the best book and, and the only dedicated literature to the North American model of wildlife conservation. And if you haven't listened to the first one, you got to go back and listen to the podcast called The Lynch Pen of Relevance. Yeah. yeah. I don't remember which episode it was. Two episodes ago. 77? Maybe 77. Okay, number one, challenges to the model, increasing human population. Mm-hmm. Um, the the let's see, eighty-two percent of the people in North America live in urban areas. Okay, that means eighteen percent of people live in rural areas. By twenty fifty, uh, let's see, no, eighty-two percent live in cities in North America. Um, a half to three quarters of the globe the globe are are urban. Um, six, okay, in the worldwide, the United, Na- United Nations projects that 68% of the global population will live in cities by 2015, an increase of 13% over the current statistic, whereas 82% of North Americans already live in urban areas. Mm-hmm. So this is globally. That's an interesting statistic because it, North America is more urban than most of the world. Yeah. So that's saying that a lot of the world still lives in rural areas and presumably are still connected to wild places. The global population is pre- projected to surge to 8.5 billion by 2030. So, I mean, the planet is just getting filled up with people. Yeah. People need space. Mm-hmm. People need places to build houses. Yeah. Uh, we I see that even in rural Arkansas mm-hmm. in the 1830s, Gerstacher, Frederick Gerstacher, the explorer, mm-hmm. the hunter that came over from Germany, that I love his book. Mm-hmm. If he came over to this place that had just become a state and was just this wild place, yeah. And if you would have told him, hey, a hundred years from now, uh, or well, hundred further than that, hundred and seventy years from now, this place is going to be so full of people. That you will not be able to get away from people. Mm-hmm. Um, it would have been. He probably would have. He probably would have cringed.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: But
2: I think about it uh, in the economics of even the way. And it probably is this way everywhere, but like people buy chunks of land and intentionally fragment it, yeah. intentionally block it. You know, they'll buy a sixty-acre tract of land, and well, mm-hmm. they'll split it into six 10 acre tracks Mm -hmm. and sell that people will buy those 10 acre tracks put in water put in septic build a cabin Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you've got six different owners on a 60 acre track of land yeah that doesn't seem that detrimental to wildlife but when you start actually adding up the amount of forest that's being pushed over Mm -hmm. gravel roads that are being put in Mm -hmm. the disturbance and fragmentation Mm mm-hmm It starts to add up ecologically, you know, for, and, and so, okay, that was, that's number one, increasing human population. Number two is globalization. This is a threat to the model. Globalization would just mean that essentially, as I understand it, that, that we're just becoming like one big nation. Mm -hmm. I mean, like throughout the 1900s, communication would have been so limited that you could have pretty much like run your own country. And your business was kind of your business yeah. in a sense. That's yeah. not true, but in a sense, today with urbanization, I've got people that don't speak English that are commenting and tormenting the Bear Hunting Magazine YouTube channel mm-hmm. because that YouTube video is all over the world, mm-hmm. and we've had people from hundreds of countries, or well over a hundred, that don't use letters. Yeah, they use different characters than yeah. the English characters. Yeah. Commenting on our bear hunting stuff, globalization. like So people could look at some person doing something and think that is barbaric. They mm-hmm. don't understand the culture. Mm-hmm. And we do it with other people too, though.
3: Yeah. I
2: mean, we can't just say they're just doing it to us because we do it to other people mm-hmm. as well in other cultures that we see that we never would have had sight into. Mm-hmm. And we say, that's crazy.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I mean, there's some things that are crazy, but I always say it like this, is that hunting is very complex and it is not understood at a glance. Mm -hmm. And it takes an intelligent look to understand that the killing of something is actually a massive contribution and a scheme to save it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, It's an odd-shaped pill, but sometimes the truth is hard to swallow. Mm -hmm. So, you know, somebody sees a hunter kill a bear on YouTube – That's in some other place. They don't have bears in that place. They live in massive cities in that place. Mm -hmm. They think that hunter just killed the last bear on the planet. Yeah. They don't understand that black bears are thriving. They don't understand that the color phase bear that I killed was a black bear and not a grizzly bear. Mm -hmm. They don't understand that Pittman Robertson money that I paid taxes on when I bought that archery equipment is going to buy wildlife habitat for mm-hmm. that bear they, they, they just don't understand yeah globalization yeah so again people's perception is really critical so approval is critical for this model to work mm-hmm. so if, if the globe is becoming smaller and there's people that don't understand and don't approve then that hurts the model okay number three urbanization and the human nature divide which uh, urbanization is just what we talked about, um, that all these people live in cities. The human nature divide is where it, he goes into this book and says that like 50% of Americans do not know basic science. Okay. Like, for instance, the, the example he used was that uh, antibiotics don't fight uh, viruses. Mm-hmm. Like uh, – uh, he said most people don't know basic science like how long you know what's the pattern of the sun as it as the earth rotates around the sun like how long is it like what is it basically a, a year mm-hmm. you know a calendar year is essentially the earth traveling around the sun yeah like people don't know that basic science and this model is based on science yeah and so his point was that if people don't know science then True science is irrelevant Mm -hmm. to them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, science and data and research Mm -hmm. is only valid if you understand it and you are like, yeah, I salute science. Science Mm -hmm. is right. Mm -hmm. What I think and my perception is probably wrong. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Like, And so basically he's saying... People, people don't know science. Yeah. You um, need a foundation. So that that would be the human nature divide. Yeah. Urbanization means people are further away from their food, further away from animal death, further away from really what happens in order to feed humans. All right? Mm-hmm. Number three, lack of connecti- connectivity of fragmentation. That goes back to most wildlife populations need, best case scenario, need unfragmented Habitats, yeah. So fragmented habitats could be as simple as like here in Arkansas, we have two what we call allopatric populations of bears in the Washtons and Ozarks. Allopatric means a isolated population. Essentially, Interstate Forty River. If you drove from Fort Smith to Little Rock, mm-hmm. um, Interstate Forty is a two lane highway divided with a median, and bears essentially don't cross that. And the Arkansas River and Interstate 540 divide the bear populations in Arkansas. Mm, okay. And that potentially has economic or not economic has biological impact. Yeah. On uh, genetics has biological impact in a lot of different ways for these populations to be able to expand and spread. Mm-hmm. Fragmentation that's big time. With uh, I read a study the other day about bobwhite quail mm-hmm. that. Paved roads actually affect bobwhite quail distribution and breeding and different things. You wouldn't think it. you think, well, yeah, a quail can run so. right across the asphalt. Yeah. It could fly right across it. Well, yeah. fragmentation, it, it messes them up. I mean, mm-hmm. like these animals have have grown up for a gazillion years inside of an environment that was wild. Mm-hmm. And just in the last hundred years, paved roads have been instituted. Yep. Bridges. You know, fields where there weren't fields before. Um, and so they've never had to deal with an asphalt road. Mm-hmm. Fragmentation. Do you understand? Do mm-hmm. you understand, River? Okay. Number six, and then there's o- only two more, guys. Oh, okay. This is like a big lecture. I love it. <laughs> this is great. Thank I you, like guys. I like it. Let's do it. Thank you. It's just, this is my class. <laughs> you, River, are my pupil. <laughs> okay. Funding fragility and resilience okay that's um yeah that that goes into just the idea of uh the the funding there's we talked about all this funding but there's massive issues with funding yeah, I mean uh, Arkansas Game and Fish Commission's license sales went down by twenty percent this year. That's really? what I heard. Oh wow! Uh, you know, it may have been eighteen, it may have been twenty-two, but in that ballpark. Yeah. Huh. So, like, all this money that we're talking about—that's paying the fuel bills for biologists driving down the road to mm-hmm. come to your property. Yeah. Like they were making, if they're making a hundred thousand, they're making eighty now. Uh, not yeah. the biologists, but just you know, this twenty percent less. Wow. That's massive. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 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 Pittman Robertson is fueled by user pay stuff. Yeah. So if the archery industry decreases because mm-hmm. people don't hunt or people are distracted with whatever is going on in life, and they be like, ah, I'm not going to hunt this year.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, they're not contributing. You know, I thought about this this year. I didn't buy a single turkey call this year. Yeah. I'm 40 years old. I think I've bought a turkey call every year of my life since I was about 16. Yeah. I've gone to Walmart or gone to the sporting goods store mm-hmm. uh, and bought a turkey call, uh, multiple turkey calls. Yeah. Well, this year, because of this COVID 19 stuff,
3: mm-hmm.
2: I didn't. I just pulled the old call that I found out and worked around on a little bit of diaphragm calls, what yeah. I use. And I was like, well, that's okay. And then River wanted a call. And what did we do? We cleaned up one of mine real good. <laughs> and I gave it to you. Mm-hmm. I usually would have just bought you one. Because it's, you know. It's kind of gross. Kind of gross. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How'd it sound, though? Hey, River has turned into a good turkey call. Really? I mm-hmm. told River Newcomb, I said, hey, if you want to be a turkey hunter, and legit, you got to learn how to use a diaphragm. Mm-hmm. And she's learning. Um, So, like, so th- th- there would be taxes that would be, on that turkey call, hunting yeah. equipment yeah, that I didn't contribute this year mm-hmm. uh, because of this COVID-19. We know there's all kind of financial implications, but so the funding is in jeopardy. And yeah. that's why, you know, 16 million hunters in, in the 1980s, now, now down to 11.5 million hunters. Yeah. Those are the people that are paying for this. Mm-hmm. And so... There's massive potential issues with funding, and so that's why hunter recruitment is so massive. And we could do a whole podcast about hunter recruitment, and maybe we will. Yeah. But man, it the math is simple. Mm. If everybody that gives a darn about hunting would just try to replicate themselves, yeah, by one or two, Mm -hmm. recruit one or two people, encourage people to buy a hunting license. You know, this year. There were several people that I encouraged to buy a hunting license, and they did, and they didn't even hunt that much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, but I, I told them, I said, "You have contributed as much to conservation this year as I have, because mm-hmm. you bought that twenty-five dollar license." And you know they went hunting one or two times. And yeah. I was like, I was like cheering them on. Good, you yeah. contributed to conservation. You have no idea what you just did, but it was significant. Yeah. If everybody was really an evangelist for what we're doing. Because, I mean, if there's 11.5 million of us, and let's just even say a very, you know, let's say 20% of those 11.5 million are woke. <laughs> and we could all replicate ourselves, take someone new, mm-hmm. encourage a buddy that hadn't hunted in a few years to buy his license and go with you. I mean, bam, you bump that number up a couple of million, yeah. which is notable. You know, I mean, so the solutions to this are, you know, to getting humans to act and do stuff that is outside of their self-interest is the climax of leadership and the most difficult thing in the world. Getting people to do stuff that's not just in direct benefit to them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, some people might think, well, you hunting is not a direct benefit to me. I mean, like they don't have interest in getting other people hunt interested in hunting i mean i do a lot of hunting that's solo hunting i I can't take you Um uh, i don't want to take you uh, <laughs> but there are some things i do that i do want to take you yeah i'm not ta- i'm pointing at colby but i'm not talking about <laughs> colby i'm mainly talking about you <laughs> there's some things i want you on some things i don't <laughs> um but you know so all of us have like we do have personal priorities inside of hunting that you know it's okay to have that yeah But there are probably places where you could give a little. Mm -hmm. And that's got to be grafted into our culture big time, big time, big time. So we all have to move beyond ourselves if we want this thing to persist. Mm -hmm. If you want your progeny to be able to be shifted and shaped by the wild places that have shifted and shaped and made you and Mm -hmm. given you joy and given you health through organic, beautiful tasty protein if you want those same wild places that have have challenged you and made you into what you are which if hunting is a part of your life i think in some way it probably has done that um so um the last one number seven uh is labeled abundance and super abundance and i'm gonna have to be honest about that while there are many instances of wildlife depopulation in the wake of human development some species of native wildlife thrive in human-impacted landscapes across North America. white deer, elk, snow geese, Canadian geese, raccoons, beavers, even black bears. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Black bears are often <laughs> highly abundant in such areas. Mm-hmm. It's true. I've said it so many times. Whatever's happening ecologically in North America has been beneficial to black bears and all these other things. But... Some abundant or superabundant species, especially herbivores, cause ecological damage, therefore thre- threatening other species of flora and fauna. So, mm-hmm. like, because of the changing ecosystem, and, and herein lies one of the challenges of the North American model. So, we just listed out the seven seven challenges. Yeah. One of them is superabundance mm-hmm. of like snow geese, white tailed deer. You know, we got 25 million white tailed deer in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, like, those are, it's a, it's a challenge to manage those. And, you know, you could go on. But, hey, um, the last one of the last things, uh, dequ- declining population, um, today less than five percent of Americans hunt. Um, it's a big deal, mm-hmm. and uh, let's see, yeah, and Tess is a tree and a squirrel, mm-hmm. but no, hey, I encourage everybody to put get this book in their hands and read it. Like I said, it's not. To me, it was fun and to a lot of people it would be a fun read, but but it's an academic read. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not made to be, it's not like full of like hunting stories and stuff. Yeah. But that's what I like. It's kind of like reading a textbook. Mm-hmm. Very well written, very to the point, full of facts and figures. I mean, but again, I think this is the linchpin of our relevance and the linchpin being a person or thing that is vital to an enterprise or an organization. And the literal meaning of linchpin is a pin that goes through an axle that holds the wheel on the axle river. So this holds the wheel on. Holds the wheel on our hunting knowledge of the North American model of wildlife conservation, uh, which has been called an act of American genius. Wasn't replicated. Yeah. And it's unreplicatable. Mm -hmm. That's what they say. That's what Shane Mahoney said. He said this is unreplicatable because... You know, in a a lot of times, if something's really successful in one place, like in a country, they'll mm-hmm. try to take it to another place yeah. and try to see if it works. And uh, because of the unique characteristics of this country, one being all the public land that we have—you know, about forty percent of this of North America's public land—and mm-hmm. uh, number two, armed citizenry. Mm-hmm. Number three, you know, kind of a a. a a national approval, a historic national approval of hunting, mm-hmm. which really is essential. I mean, like so many of our the patriarchs of this country were hunters and were endeared patriarchs, you know? I mean, like, Dan- like most people in this country, if you said Daniel Boone, pos- thumbs up or thumbs down, they would say thumbs up. Davy Crockett, thumbs up or thumbs down? Thumbs up. What do you know about Davy Crockett? He killed a bear when he was only three. Davy, <laughs> Davy Crockett. They they would I understand him as a hunter. I got just a small chuckle out of that song, because <laughs> you know what he what would people think of when they thought of Davy Crockett? They'd think of hunting. Mm-hmm. What do they think of when they think of Daniel Boone? They'd think of hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know some of these some of these hunters. Can y'all think of any others? River can't. Colby can't either. Come on, man, man, I'm drawing a blank.
1: Just hunters. Can I mean, we think of other hunters? I was,
2: I, those those two are pretty famous.
1: Okay, gotcha. You know
2: gotcha. Boone and Crockett. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there were a lot. There were a lot of other hunters that yeah. were nationally known and men that were hunters. But, but uh, so hey, that's all. Go yeah. get this book, and uh, man, I think the more knowledge that we have. And as that knowledge is filtered through the life of a person that is that that cares and that is giving back and is being responsible inside the hunting world and being a positive representation of a modern hunter, I think it. I think it's helping, mm-hmm. and and, and, I, and I think we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, but we do. We're massively. This book, in some ways, is a little bit depressing because it, it does talk about the challenges. But hey, we were put here for such a time as this. Yep. So, River, what should people do? Keep the wild
1: places wild. Because, oh, can we start from the beginning? Yeah. Okay. Keep the wild places wild because that's where the bears live. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries.